0: Hello and welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald from the Academy of Ideas. This morning, the BBC announced that Gary Lineker is to return to presenting sport on the BBC. Sparked by his tweet, critical of new government policy on immigration controls and his subsequent suspension from Match of the Day, Lineker has barely been off the front pages this week. It raised all sorts of questions about the tweet itself, The action of Lineker's supporters, the response of the BBC, and also wider issues of impartiality, of free speech, which seems to have gained some new, perhaps opportunistic supporters, and also of the wider ramifications of cancel culture and the reticence of some who might have been expected to argue against Lineker's sacking to do so. To discuss this week's events, I'm joined by my Academy of Ideas colleagues, Claire Fox, Rob Lyons and Ella Whelan. We can come to broader issues of impartiality. But to start with, I'd like to look at Lineker's tweet and the reaction to it. And first of all, uh, Rob, maybe you can comment on the situation this morning where the BBC have decided to reinstate Lineker.
1: Well, I mean, I think it was going to be pretty inevitable, given the backlash, that, um, that some kind of deal would be hashed out. And it sounds like yes, the status quo anti, but there'll be some kind of independent review of social media usage. And I think that one of the biggest problems for the the BBC in all of this is that their guidelines aren't very clear at all, and it's not very clear how well they apply to Gary Lineker. Um, So I I I think that's a a sensible move. Um, And I I think that the big problem in all of this is that it calls into question free speech. And I think that that whatever I think about what Gary Lineker said and whatever I think about the questions of impartiality and contracts and guidelines and all that sort of stuff, at the end of the day, we, we, we should always uh, sort of bend the stick towards protecting free speech and protecting people's uh, ability to um comment on the on the world whatever you think of his uh, the, the quality of his comment which was pretty dreadful really um historically illiterate relativizing the holocaust and all this sort of stuff his general views about refugees and failing to grasp the seriousness of the situation in that regard as well but <clears throat> i think in the in the end they they just had to come up with some kind of deal to sort of make this go away for a while
0: Okay, well, let's go back to his original tweet then, Ella, and just uh, try to get to grips with it, because he tweeted it out and all of a sudden there was a huge number of people that all uh, seem to be in favour now of free speech, who up until now seem to have been conspicuously quiet on this issue. Um, How do you view it? I mean, is it the free speech issue that Lineker's supporters are saying it is?
2: Yeah, well, I think, I mean, the, the way in which Rob described with the kind of, you know, sort of almost a sigh all the sort of like oh well it's guidelines and it's rules I think there is you know it's pretty on, on a certain level it's kind of boring debating whether or not he did break the BBC rules and whether or not he is in breach of a contract that he signed and that kind of sort of technical side of stuff in which you know probably you can say if someone has signed up to a particular set of rules with an employer and you break it you know you should probably at least expect. Um, a slap on the wrist. But the far more interesting and important important side of this and and why actually, I think, by the way, it's gone from having one person send one tweet to a sort of national, maybe even international discussion about, um, you know, the head of the BBC impartiality and the BBC involvement with government in the state broadcast, you know, massive conversation um, is because we're living in a time when, The idea of someone being able to speak freely and uh, even if that, as Rob says, is, you know, a ridiculous kind of NUS level sort of um, lame comment about everything that I don't like is like the 1930s. I think it tells you how um, how sort of contested and important the issue of free speech and censorship is today. And, you know, I think most people, most people look at what Gary, most people know that Gary Lineker sounds off a lot. On social media is sort of what he does, and if he was, um, I think most people look at him and say, "Well, if he was a a presenter on Newsnight, it would be pretty obvious that this was unacceptable." But you know, it's unlikely that, um, or at least you sort of hope it's unlikely that the Home Secretary is going to be listening to what him and Ian Wright sort of think about small boats over the, you know, over the rest of the country. Um, So people are, I think, the BBC just made such a huge mistake. You know, an own girl who makes some crap pun, Um, you know, about how to handle this. And I think it reveals how nervous they are um, about, you know, about social media. It's quite remarkable that the BBC is paying so much attention to social media. I think it shows you how, how much weight Twitter has in, in contemporary politics. Uh, and also how little confidence and authority they have in themselves. Because at the end of the day, you've now had basically, you know, one of the their top earners. He's one of the biggest stars in the BBC. Match of the Day does not, well, quite literally, does not exist without him. Um, and they've had to, you know, completely row back, grovel, and apologize. And they just look like fools. It's kind of they've it's an incredibly embarrassing moment for the BBC and sadly because his view was so stupid, Gary Lineker looks like he's been vindicated.
0: Claire, where, where do you stand on this? Because many of the people who are uh, critical of Lin- Lineker and what he said have pointed out that he signed a, a new contract reasonably recently that it, the context for this is a situation where the BBC has is in this struggle to improve its impartiality and therefore it's not unreasonable for them to demand a, a level of behaviour that's consistent Consistent with both what's in his contract and with the set of guidelines on social media usage and conduct of a presenter. I mean, albeit not a journalist, but nevertheless a presenter.
3: But I think that Ella's right, that the, the danger is that we start having arguments about a contract none of us have seen. And one of the ambivalent relationships that the BBC has with its talent is often that they are on freelance contracts that do not make the same demands as if you worked as an employee. So in that sense, I've no idea whether he broke or did not break anything contractually. Where it becomes confusing is, um, first of all, that football commentators have become embroiled in politics more recently anyway. We know that football is no longer become, is not a politics-free zone. I don't mean match of the day, but I mean, we only have to look at the arguments around Black Lives Matters taking the knee and indeed Qatar which let's be honest, um, I have to say that Gary Lineker is not free from criticism on if you're going to start having some concerns over uh, human rights and, and, you know, exploitation and vulnerable people and so on. I thought it was absolutely remarkable when that he put out his statement of reconciliation after he had had his frank talks with the BBC. He said, you know, I'm, don't worry, I kind of, you know, I'm going to be calm and thank you everybody and it's all been very and then he said but i haven't suffered as much as the people on small boats arriving on this island blah blah and you think god he can't help himself you know it's kind of become a sort of tick that, that 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 people feel they have to say the right thing but where it's complicated technically is for example michael portillo you actually made some interesting points on this on gb news at the weekend but he does a trains program as a freelancer, but for the BBC. But he then is also on political programmes commenting. Well, I mean, he was while he was working with the BBC. He was on The Moral Maze with me. That's political commentary. And he was on Andrew Neil's programme. And so I just think it's not as straightforward for those people who say he should only ever be allowed to speak on football. His contract wouldn't. I mean, it's just not as simple as that. So that we can talk about that in more detail. I think that the broader context, though, Well, there's two things. One is that um, Gary Lineker has been writing rude tweets about anyone who didn't agree with um, him on the Remain side since the Brexit vote in 2016. He's actually lashed out at Leave voters in ways that I found deeply offensive and, 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 you know, uh, annoying and, you know, actually offensive and upsetting in some ways, um, and he was part of that whole cabal who's done so. And the BBC didn't really take him to task for that. What's, what happened here, which is, makes it slightly peculiar politically, is that he made his point about a government policy. The government then ridiculed him in the House of Commons. And then the BBC Act. So at a superficial level, it looks as though he's been reprimanded for criticising the government of the day. And that's why you get all this the BBC's run by Tories palaver going on, which I'm not taking it on face value. I'm simply saying that slightly confuses it because when he was been lashing out at um, you know, voters, as it were, there was less intervention by the government. That's the first thing. But the, the, the second context, very important, is the issue around refugees and migration, which we know is highly contentious at the moment. And actually, all that Lineker did was say what is happening. I mean, it's being said in the House of Lords that, you know, that this policy is verging on 1930s fascism. I mean, I've heard bishops say similar things in the House of Lords on a debate on small boats and migration last year. The standing up and calling people far right because, for example, they're concerned about people in local hotels. I mean, people have been called far right for being opposed to low-traffic neighbourhoods. I mean, you can get called far-right and Nazi. 1930s Germany was regularly used to attack Leave voters and um, by people on the left, like Paul Mason, um, by Owen Jones and all of these kind of characters. So we've become very lazy in our relativism of the Holocaust. And to imply that people who are concerned about small boats Um, Are somehow fascist, I think what's happened is that that's why it became such a big split, because so many people are just so fed up of feeling that their motives are impugned in that way, that they abandon their commitment to free speech and say Lineker deserves to be sacked, which I think is a real mistake, by the way. I think even now I'm getting attacked and I'm saying, they, I, I mean, on social media myself, by people well, who were free speech, You say, I've given up on free speech. There must be consequences for this speech. All the arguments that have been used for cent- for censorship by the snowflake, easily offended crowd are now being deployed, saying, no, this is, we should have got rid of him. You know, and I, in other words, my fear is at the end of this, Lineker's been turned into a free speech martyr, which he doesn't deserve. People who gave solidarity to Linneker have never given solidarity to anyone else who've been cancelled, you know, get away with being on the side of the angels. And the people who should be consistent on free speech are so exasperated an atmosphere in which their views are demonised and delegitimised as on a par with Nazism. That they actually abandon free speech. That's a terrible outcome.
0: It does seem to me that wherever you turn on this matter, you, it's a house of horrors. I mean, whether it's Lineker and what he said, whether it's his supporters, whether it's the actions of the BBC, or indeed whether it's the actions of the 36 Tory MPs who started writing letters demanded that he be sacked. It just seems that there's no redeeming factors whatsoever in this in, entire issue. Um, Rob, or, or, or anyone, if they, if they want to pick up on it, but you mentioned the... The, the question of uh, Lineker's historical illiteracy in, 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 in what he said, in the comparison of what is, uh, you know, a relatively uh, normal attempt from a nation state to work out what it is that it wants to do in terms of implementing an immigration policy and to compare that to uh, 1930s Germany or the language of 1930s Germany, as as he said, but everybody knew what he was getting at, really. And it was followed up, you uh, know, Yesterday or the day before by Alistair Campbell, who then chimed in with the idea that because the BBC is getting rid of the the the, the singers choir, uh, that this somehow uh, replicates what what went on in in Germany in the 1930s as well. From uh, from a point of view of attacking arts and culture, so I just wonder, in terms of what's been said here, just how damaging is this to to try and make these these almost crass analogies?
1: Well, I mean, the problem in in Germany. In the 1930s, wasn't about immigration. It was about Germany's own citizens being vilified and um, persecuted. Um, I, I was I, I was reminded of the a line in the song "Cool for Cats" by um, Squeeze, which goes something like, um, "She doesn't mind the language; it's the beatings she don't need." And that, that's a, a, exactly what the situation was in uh, 1930s Germany. Is that yes, of course there was all this vitriol being directed. At Jewish people. But the, the rea- reality was, that, you know, being beaten on the streets, we, we saw, you know, the, the most obvious example is crystal, crystal you know, That's the state of play. Whereas in um, the UK, the, the Home Secretary can say, we're welcoming refugees from Ukraine, from Hong Kong, from Afghanistan, from other countries as well. But we need to have some control over it. And we can't have a situation where boats can just land on our shores and p- people will then be, be be kept here for for months or even years waiting for a claims to be decided and so on and so forth it's, it's it's dangerous for those people who are traveling on those boats and it's um it, it denies the uk the opportunity to decide who sh- should or shouldn't live here and that is a perfectly reasonable position and you can argue about whether we should have be been more liberal on Im- immigration or less liberal but um, that is a perfectly respectable problem to identify so to then take anything that you like and say this is like the Nazis is is one it, it relativizes and trivializes that experience of the 1930s and 40s and and says all it, it, it's all just on a spectrum rather than the sort of unique horrors of 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 Nazi Germany. And it just debases political debate because then you can't have sensible conversations, you can't have nuanced conversations about things, about, about real world problems that we're facing at the moment if you immediately bring down the shutters and divide everybody into the good people and the Nazis.
3: To emphasise just on that point, this was about the extermination of the Jewish people, the extermination in death camps and we you know i mean to make any way light of the idea that a an immigration policy had anything to do has got anything to do with that is ridiculous i don't agree with all of this new proposed illegal immigration bill that's coming up but i want to be able to discuss it but when i hear people accusing the tories of being on a par with people who were out to destroy a whole ethnicity, all Jewish people, you know, you can't even emphasize what that means in today's context, versus um, uh, uh, trying to do, which, by the way, democratically, we um, have demanded that you take control of borders. It makes political discourse impossible. And that's the point. They're actually trying to delegitimize opponents of this bill by basically saying you're so far beyond the pale that we don't have to engage with you so then think who they're doing aiming that at. who's most concerned about that well they would say you know the people say oh it's the far right the nazis but they're often talking about ordinary people um who have for whatever reasons feel that the refugee crisis is a lightning rod of, A, the refusal of a government to do what they asked, which is to take control of the borders, or B, whose towns and localities suffering under the, not the recession, but the cost of living crisis and so on, are now having to look after and um, uh, pay lots of money for a failed um, refugee asylum system and the hotels and all of the usual things. But nobody ever shows empathy with ordinary people's views on this question why is it that Gary Lineker has to say this is nothing on the suffering of the refugees he could say and this is nothing on the upset I've caused those people who are legitimately worried about the refugee situation and I compare them to Nazis he didn't say that though it's only one group only and so obviously many working class people are furious about this situation ella
2: the, the problem is and this isn't sort of come as a surprise to people but the way in which gary Lineker and the kind of people who use the sort of 1930s this is all nazis um mode of of kind of engaging politically the problem with it is is that it's so superficial and it's so insubstantial and you can tell that by you know in his um response to the bbc apology and his tweets where he sort of you know is just kind of pretending to be magnanimous and say oh thank you so much I I, you know I I'm so glad to be back he he's finished off by saying we remain a country of predominantly tolerant welcoming and generous people but you know you can't flip from saying we live in 1930s hellhole to then saying actually we live in everything's fine and we live in a great country and the reason why he tweeted that wasn't because he's changed his mind politically but because he thinks he's so sort of is such an egomaniac that he thinks the proof of him being reinstated at the BBC says something more broader about the nations that the nation is behind him in thinking that that you know the Tories are like uh, the Nazis and that actually he's you know completely justified. It would be easy to say, well, it's just Gary Lineker. he's just a sports pundit, so what? Who cares? Move on. But but the problem is because this is the level at which the debate about immigration is is being is taking place at the moment. You know either you on such insubstantial sort of shallow lines as either you are a lovely moral person who loves immigrants and you know in this sort of like you know totally kind of apolitical way actually um or you're a horrendous racist and a bigot and you can't get to grips with the fact that so much of this debate is in difficult gray area so much of it is about you know weighing up kind of boring things like how many resources does a community have what is the kind you know you know not to get kind of hung up on numbers but, you know you do have to do some kind of relatively boring political assessment of saying if you've got a government that literally will not put its hand in its pocket for anything, you know, related to the cost of living crisis or anything like that, and then suddenly you've got, you know, what seems like an uncontrollable situation and borders, that's going to cause tensions. And that doesn't make you a sort of bleeding heart liberal or a horrendous racist. Most people sit somewhere in a kind of awkward middle and, you know, contributions from Gary Lineker like this, I think it's important because it just shows how how sort of tied up in shallow debate we are and by the way the fact that Rishi Sunak you know, in, in doesn't have the kind of foresight to say I don't I'm not no comment on this I'm not going to make you know uh, this is up to the BBC leave me alone the fact that he had to a bit like Gary Lineker come in and say oh well it's the BBC's business but by the way my plan is really great and you know and basically sticking his oar in you know just shows how unserious everyone seems to be a about what is a very serious situation.
0: Well, that seems a good point to move on to broader issues of impartiality, which have come up in all sorts of ways. I mean, we only got to look in the last couple of weeks at the uh, case of Sue Gray, previously uh, employed in a senior role in the civil service, and indeed uh, the person that conducted the Partygate inquiry, now appearing as chief of staff of the Labour Party, the Simon Case, uh, permanent secretary who's, uh, being exposed as uh, very much within the WhatsApp messages as as being quite a political figure rather than a, a more neutral figure. And the, the controversies over the past couple of years, whether it be the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and the way that that seems to have permeated even into the very senior levels of the civil service, as well as the the gender ideology and so on and so forth, which have caused continual controversies around this issue of impartiality. So, Claire, I know that you've... Um, Thought quite a lot about this. Indeed, you gave a lecture at our uh, the Ideas Matters Academy Summer School um, quite recently on it. But kind of just in terms, what actually is the onus on on these on, on these civil service figures and these uh, people who work within institution, public institutions? What is the onus of impartiality on them, and why why do they need to adhere to this neutrality?
3: Well, obviously, the the, the just to sort of talk about the media in particular. There is obviously a particular relationship between impartiality and the BBC that's required because of the license fee. People rightly say you can't watch any television. It's not that you can't watch the BBC if you don't pay your license fee. You can't watch television per se if you don't pay the license fee, which goes to the BBC largely. And the nature of that, um, or the, the social contracts associated with that, is that the bbc is impartial but we associate impartiality or i do importantly with news and current affairs you know i don't and i think that where where we've got into a mess at the moment is that within news and current affairs many people have lost faith in the impartiality of the bbc now we know that that occurred I know I keep going on about Brexit, but Brexit was a very big, important moment in the history of this country because it revealed to people that the state broadcaster, effectively, thought that the majority of people who ultimately voted to leave the European Union were kind of Neanderthal knuckle draggers, or they didn't ever anticipate it was going to happen, and so didn't have their finger on the pulse. So they're completely shocked. So, so much for their kind of you know finger on the nation's pulse. You know, I've I've told stories before about being on BBC programmes and when I said I was going to vote leave and everyone laughing and they thought I was joking because it couldn't possibly be true that somebody who was a Radio 4 commentator could possibly vote leave. You know, this was like, and you know, and saying things like, does anyone know anyone who's going to vote leave? Those kind of comments were frequent in the build up to 2016. They then got a terrible shock. But the nation saw and felt that they were being treated with contempt and had been. And the I'm not going to rehearse everything that occurred then. So that gave a sense in which people felt that it was, or a section of society felt that there wasn't part, it wasn't impartial. Now, ironically, there's another group of people who think that the, the BBC is run by Tories who are pro-leave, and why is that? Because whenever the BBC often in the most cack-handed, awkward way, try and make amends for this inability to grasp anything beyond the Metropolitan. They they then go out and do kind of naff things or, or get people like me on, unforgivably, onto the radio. You know, Ella Whelan on the radio, you know, da, 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 you know, this kind of thing. They then say, oh the gammon are on, right? And therefore they're accommodating to the gammon and the Tory right-wing far-right Nazis, if you know what I mean. So you've got everybody unhappy. And I don't think that means, by the way, the BBC are playing it well. I think that they've lost control. But I'm talking about news and current affairs. Now, because news and current affairs have emptied themselves out of that impartiality in some ways, Other actors have added, added, come in. So that's why I'm saying it's become... the the default position of even football commentators. But actually, you'll now find that nature programmes, you know, programmes about animals and nature, um, have become, you know, what feels like propaganda for environmentalism rather than anything like a a kind of impartial, balanced view. And so it goes on and on. History programmes, rather than being historical accounts brilliantly elucidating what happened in the past have become mad in political issues around black lives matters critical race theory and so on everything rewritten in a particular even drama not even drama but you know i listen to the archers i know terrible i listen to the archers so the archers is constantly and endlessly politicized and then I thought it was doing quite well at the weekend in the catch-up, only to discover that the stately home has got a picture of, guess what? Well, a slave ship. And now they're doing an audit of all their pictures. I'm like, oh, my God, this is relentless. So I think the problem is that impartiality affects institutions when people feel they can't trust them. And your broader question, just finish on this, because right, the civil service and all that... What we all feel is that all of these institutions which you want to feel are disinterested enough to present you with the facts of the matter or do their job impartially so that they're not partisan and being a civil servant, that means doing whatever your government tells you to do, your politicians tell you to do because they were elected by ordinary people, by the voters, that they won't go and I'm not doing that because I don't believe in it or they won't try and rewrite everything according to a script that hasn't been embraced by everyone. I think there's a really huge problem here that we then lose trust in institutions. And that's a nihilistic, dark hole none of us want anyone to go down.
0: We did a a session at Battle of Ideas last year called No Minister, the Crisis of the Civil Service. The reference point, obviously, being the Yes Minister series of, of decades ago. And I suppose some people who come back uh, and 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 say, you know, what's what's the problem here? Has it not been ever thus? I mean, in yes minister the the civil servants crept around trying to manipulate the politicians, and you know, is there anything different in in today? So, Ella, have you have, have you any thoughts on 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 that?
2: I think there is something different today. Um, I mean, we know, you know, <laughs> we know that, for example, there are the things go on behind the scenes, and there are collusions between government and the press, you know, as we've seen recently with Matt Hancock's very cozy relationship with George Osborne and the leaked WhatsApps and, you know, we, so everybody sort of knows that that goes on. But I think there's a different thing happening today, which is that people who who serve a kind of quasi-public role, whether that's civil servants or, you know, news presenters, um, you know, people who who are meant to be give, you know, doing something that's sort of public-facing, have lost the ability to differentiate between their private feelings and political desires and their professional public lives. So, you know, if you look, for example, the BBC is just hemorrhaging people. You know, Emily Maitlis, Andrew Marr, it's all all these big political um, heavyweights are leaving, not because the conditions are terrible at the BBC and they're not getting paid enough, but because they just, they, they, they feel the need so so greatly to voice their political opinions. I mean, Andrew Marr's gone to LBC or something, and, you know, it's unfortunately, suddenly everything you ever... He was such a good, you know, in many ways, such a good presenter because he never let on what he thought, but you always had a suspicion, and obviously anyone who's listened to him recently on NBC, you think, oh, yeah, everything I thought he thought... He does. Um, But there's, you know, that tells you something about people's sort of unwillingness to actually make that kind of sacrifice, which is to say, OK, I, you know, I I have a particular view, but I'm but I'm able to put that aside to do my job. And look, it's not hard. I mean, I don't want to blow smoke up our backsides, but, you know, the Battle of Ideas Festival is is run and peopled by and chaired by deeply political people who have, you you know, Claire doesn't hide her political views. And yet we're able to, you know, for the function of a public debate, put those to one side to make sure that the debate runs properly. And, you know, it strikes me that's that's it's not impossible to do that on any of the big political programmes on the BBC. And I think in a different context, it would be sort of fine if, you know, you had a nature program in which you knew that the the presenter was a real climate kind of activist nut, as long as they did a good program that didn't beat you over the head with their particular kind of um, political opinion. The problem is that doesn't happen. And I think people are quite cynical at the moment in this idea that cynical about the idea that you could have a separation between private and professional life and you know I, I want to as much as possible push back against that because i think you know nurturing that kind of cynicism doesn't lead to a good place for politics because you know nobody is without bias uh, un- unless you're kind of apolitical and sort of dull everybody has their opinions it's about whether or not you can put them to one side in sacrifice of something something bigger or something more important at the right time
0: i suppose the argument though comes back to that that we live in a in in a world where technology is advanced, where the social media, where your 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 what might have been more private thoughts are now blasted out into the public sphere, and it's collapsed the private and the public sphere. And I wonder, Robert, do you give any credence to that, or or is that just a, a side issue?
1: Well, it's it's still the case, though, that if if you wish to, because of your role. Um, you uh, you can put aside um, what your your personal views, then you can still do that. I mean, I think Andrew Neil's quite a good example of somebody when he's doing his job on the BBC of interviewing somebody. You don't feel that there's there's uh, any favours being granted. The fact that Boris Johnson refused to appear on his interview pr- program. Um, in the run-up uh, to the last general election, is a very good example of the fact that he was going to get roasted by Andrew Neil, who is, you know, is broadly speaking, a conservative-leaning uh, person. So he, no fear or favour being granted, and that's the job that a... Um, in these particular roles, that's their job, um, and therefore they do have to, as Ellis says, put these things to one side. Um, so we can do it yeah and we should do it and i mean nick Tim- timothy in the telegraph today talks about um uh, impartiality as all right it's a it's a fiction to to a degree uh, but it's a useful fiction and if we all try to kind of go along with it and 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 at least embody the spirit of of impartiality and fairness then that's yeah. better than a world in which we have all our news channels for example become entirely biased i mean i don't want a world in which As we see in America, where there's, you know, you've got your CNNs and your MSNBCs versus your Fox News and so on. I want a place where I can at least try and go along and the the news will be presented to me and an endeavor will be made to try to be balanced, even with the slightly blinkered worldview of the the people producing news at the BBC and whatever. There'll there'll be some attempt to do that. Um, And uh, yeah, and and people can can do that. I mean, I think that the the rot for me started when the BBC made a very explicit thing that they were no longer going to be uh, balanced about climate change. They had a seminar, they invited some eco-activists and some activist scientists along, and they said, right, from now on, we are not going to be balanced about climate change. Um, and I think that, that once you've set that precedent, um, I think that that's, um, that, that, that's just a, a major part of how the rot set in.
2: Listening to the radio this morning, um, you know, there's this kind of, sort of row going on about one of the David Attenborough programs, which you know isn't going to be a one nature program that isn't going to be shown because on the television it's only going to be put on iPlayer because it'll, you know, supposedly people saying create a right-wing backlash and you know when questioned about this one of the people involved in the program said well yes we've made that decision but you know it's important that everybody does more to save the climate it's important that we get corporations it's important you know this is that's not impartial there's there's nothing impartial about that there's nothing that's completely biased you know it's completely bypassing any kind of discussion about anything to do with how we might address climate change and it's just you know that the kind of deification of David Attenborough driving me mad on a daily basis but particularly on this issue which is like you know if anybody doesn't agree with David Attenborough you're a far-right Nazi and your views should just be sort of discredited as some kind of backlash I mean it's enough to make you want to sack them all that.
3: I did did laugh at that interview this morning though because the interview on the Today programme the major news programme which had just been discussing impartiality was with the UK head of the WEF discussing this new series by uh, David Attenborough, who are part funders of the series of David Attenborough. Which I mean, can you imagine if it was Shell or ExxonMobil, the funders of the new series for the BBC of David Attenborough, and the fact that they were treated with, you know, absolute decorum, no attempt at journalistic um, interrogation other than to say is it true or is it not true that this sixth programme, this is the, the BBC having to go at The Guardian because The Guardian say the BBC have banned, spiked it and so on. But this was kind of internal route. Right? It wasn't a query about the partiality or otherwise of this series of documentaries, which it was pretty obvious is not going to be impartial. But I think that one of the things that is a problem for the BBC, and this just kind of sums up, the difficulties they've got to understanding themselves what's going on, I think, which is that if you, I mean, I heard that Roger Bolton, who used to be um, uh, run the kind of media, I can't remember what it's called now, um, programme on Radio 4, he's a kind of, um, uh, anyway, he used to be where you would complain if you had a problem with uh, problems on the BBC. And uh, he's very much a Mr. Impartial Man. He's certainly somebody who probably would... I think we might say might even have some sympathy with Gary Lineker. But he's definitely a believer in impartiality. And the thing that I think is that they are very self-regarding about impartiality when it comes to condemning the likes of alternative channels like GB News and Talk TV. Suddenly, everybody becomes in defense of impartiality. right? It's like we are the impartial. We would never dream of having an opinion on anything. And yet we know that's not true. I thought Ellen made some fantastic points there about the fact that in the past we might have suspected we knew what the impartial presenters felt. But I think that it's just they just ran out of steam. So if you look, whenever I did Newsnight, people would always say on social media, Emily Maitlis can't help it. Whenever Claire Fox on, she just drips contempt. And it was true that I'd be sitting there and Emily Maitlis would smile at me. But it was like this. One of those kind of sneery smiles where you just saw she absolutely hates me. And she doesn't realize that that the audience can see it and she couldn't contain herself. Now, so many of those people have left the BBC. And what I'm what I'm getting to on this is that they have become rather self-regarding and arrogant because they think that political life is now a shambles. The me- they as the media are more able to understand the world than anyone else that they are the real opposition to the government and that's exactly what's happened to the civil service so the civil service go oh the politicians are absolutely hopeless so there's a sort the vacuum at the heart of political life which we know is true because both the conservative party and the labor party are almost hollowed out versions of themselves have left a vacuum into which people who previously had a role but which was contained have basically come full swing and, you know, come out. And so Emily this really believes, and not just her, I don't want to have a go at her particularly. All of them believe that they are compensating for this gap in the political market. That's what the home office civil servants think. They think the government have lost the plot. We're going to do this instead. You know, they've gone racist. We're going to, we're going to compensate for the fact that they're all over the place and they can't decide what they think. But that brings with it a completely tin-eared arrogance, in my opinion. And that's why these people don't even hear themselves. And the people who remain at the uh, BBC, and there are, by the way, many fine, impartial journalists at the BBC. I I, I think that uh, Justin Webb and Amal Rajan on the Today programme do a bloody good job, and, and, and other presenters as well. But it's just that they're now a rarity, and you kind of look at them as an oddity of the past. That is what the BBC should stand for. Something, as Rob says, where you can listen or watch and not feel you're getting a lecture, but most of the time, most ordinary people feel that they're being hected too.
0: Yeah, I very much agree with that. And it seems to me to be the the reason why... Uh, all this talk of new guidelines as the BBC have announced this morning that they're going to do even after accepting Lineker back as a presenter, or someone suggested there needs to be a Royal Commission uh, to, to look into this. I mean, these kind of, Inquiries or more technical solutions seem to me to be completely uh, unable uh, to serve uh, to to resolve some of the more serious issues of political authority and the collapse of any sort of sense of public duty that has accompanied that. Uh, Rob, any final thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, one thing to say is it's not just the BBC either. I mean, when there was the tomato shortage, which still is rumbling on, but. Seems to be getting better. Um, I watched uh, Channel 4 News and watched Krishnan Guru Murphy go on and on and on to everybody he was interviewing. But what about Brexit? What about Brexit? To what extent is this caused by Brexit? And he can't help himself. Channel 4 News has always been like that. It is a still a state-owned broadcaster, which is still supposedly got to follow impartiality guidelines just like everybody else. Um and so, yeah, the the, the the problem is just very, very widespread. You can see much the same thing on ITV News as well, and Sky News and all the rest of it. Sky News tries to be an impartial uh, channel, pret- pretends to follow impartiality guidelines, but runs climate change campaigns. It's just mad. Um, so, you know, we I think we, what we learn learned from this really is that you know, we actually should, calling for... Uh, journalists across the board to do right by the public and interrogate um people from all sides and challenge all of these uh, sort of um opinions there these fashionable opinions that um are, are taken as as truth rather than as things that are susceptible to debate
0: that seems a very good point on which to leave it thanks to everyone for all your thoughts I think this issue is definitely going to run and run. We've certainly not heard the last of it, and it's something that we'll be definitely thinking about how to feature within Battle of Ideas Festival later this year. And no doubt we'll come back to it on this podcast uh, time and again. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Podcast of Ideas. Do subscribe on your favourite podcast feed, and you can also sign up to our regular Substack at clairefox.substack.com. See you soon.